If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to the 16th chapter of the book of Revelation. Uh, For some of you, it may be a delight to hear if you have become overwhelmed with a sense of judgment in this book that beginning next week, we're going to take a break from the book of Revelation. Um, And I think it's appropriate that as we begin to consider the first advent of Christ, the first coming of Christ uh, during Christmas, that we return to it in January as we begin to make our way to John's vision where he discusses the second advent of Christ. And so we're going to take a time out during Advent and consider his first arrival as we prepare for studying the remainder of this book as we near the portion that speaks of his second coming. This morning we're in chapter 16. Chapter 15 that we looked at last week introduced us to seven angels in heaven that are given seven bowls that we are told are full of the wrath of God. And now in chapter 16, these angels, at the command of God, will pour out these bowls. So we have had the seven seal judgments, and then the seven trumpet judgments, and now we come to the seven bowl judgments. Now, since chapter 16 is a bit longer, and it really doesn't lend itself to be broken up, I'm going to handle it a little bit differently than I normally do. Instead of reading the entire chapter and then going back and seeking to exegete ex, uh, each verse uh, one at a time, what I'd like to do this morning is simply walk through the text together and read one or two verses at a time, explain them, apply them, and just walk through chapter 16 together. But before we do so, let us pause and ask God to bless the reading of his word. Our Father, we thank you so much for privilege and blessing that it's already been this morning to gather as your people to recall the death and resurrection of Christ, not only in song, but in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And we turn now to your word, Father, and we ask that you would speak to us from it. Father, may we never lose sight of the miracle of that prayer, that you would speak to your people from your word. We thank you so much for this book, Lord. Without it, we would not know you. Without it, we would not come to grips with the depravity of our own souls and our need for rescue. Without it, we would not know the hope of the gospel. And so, in faith, we thank you for it. And we pray that this morning you would do just that. You would speak to us from it. We ask not that we would simply walk away being better informed about what it says, having a better intellectual understanding of this chapter, 
but that we would literally be transformed by it. That your church, Father, us, that we would look more like your son Jesus as a result of having spent time in your word this morning. And we pray for those that are in this room and are within the earshot of my voice, wherever they may be, who are far from you, who have not professed faith in Jesus as their only hope. We pray, Father, that the gospel would be held out in this passage even, and that you would bring them across the line of faith and turn sinners into saints and enemies into worshipers. We thank you for this, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we begin Revelation 16 in verse 1. John says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So this loud voice is God himself speaking. It must be God. Because we learned at the end of the previous chapter that the temple of God, the sanctuary of God in heaven, was filled with smoke. And we're told in the very last verse that, that no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven angels had poured out and finished all of the seven plagues. So this is God speaking, and he's speaking to the seven angels, and he tells them to pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And so we're going to look at each one of these bowls. The first is found in verse 2. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. So one of the key differences here between these bowl judgments in chapter 16 and the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments which came earlier in Revelation One of the key differences between them is revealed in this first bowl. And that that is that these bowls, full of God's wrath, are not poured out on humanity in some kind of general sense, but are poured out specifically and exclusively, as we're told, on the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image, on those who reject Christ. And follow the beast instead. And, and, and the fact that the identity of those is, is initiated here means it is representative of all of these bold judgments. In other words, all of these bold judgments that we'll cover in this chapter where the wrath of God is poured out on men, all of them are poured out exclusively on unbelievers, those who have not come to faith in Jesus. So, Praise God that those who have come to faith in Jesus by the grace of God, because we all deserve God's wrath, we do not get what we deserve. Instead, we get what we don't deserve, which is eternity with God. And so if we're looking for a reason for these bold judgments, I think there are three of them, and we'll see these three reasons reflected as we work through all of these bold judgments. The first reason for them is that justice demands that sin be judged. 
justice demands that sin be dealt with justly. And these judgments here are a foreshadowing of the last and final judgment that is to come. And so for those who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus, we know that Jesus takes our punishment. And the demand for justice because of our sin has been satisfied by Jesus, who died in our place on the cross and bore the weight of our sins. But for those who have not been saved by grace through faith, judgment yet remains for their sin because justice demands that sin be judged. That's the first reason. The second reason for these bold judgments is because apparently there is still time to repent. The fact that these are poured out exclusively on unbelievers suggests to us that there is still time to repent. This is not the final judgment, but they are the last judgments that hold out the hope of the gospel, the hope of forgiveness, the the hope of redemption. And as we walk through this, we would hope that some of these on whom these judgments are poured out would repent and would turn away from their sin and self-rule and and trusting Christ and stop following the beast. But sadly, as we'll see, few, if any, do. And then a third reason for these bold judgments is because God is delivering his people. The fact that these are, they're called harmful and painful sores here in this first bowl is reminiscent of the sixth plague of Egypt and the boils that uh, they received as a result of that sixth plague. And so once again, we're reminded of the Exodus story. And we will be reminded of the Exodus story and returned to many of the plagues of Egypt throughout this discussion of the bold judgments. And so what was happening in the plagues of Egypt? Well, God was afflicting Pharaoh and afflicting the Egyptians with all kinds of suffering and plagues so that they might, what, let his people go, let the Hebrews go. But as we know, Pharaoh hardened his heart and did not let them go. And I find it interesting here that the beast, the Antichrist, the false prophet, the second beast, and the dragon himself are still active. And they are at this time persecuting and deceiving and attacking the church at this time. And so I think in part these bold judgments are intended to free God's people today, the church, from the grip of these forces of evil, just like the plagues of Egypt were meant to free and release the Hebrews from the grip of Pharaoh. And so we will see each of these three reasons for the bold judgments kind of thematically uh, referred to as we walk through all of the bold judgments in chapter 16. The second one is found in verse 3. Verse 3 says, The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. If you'll recall, at the blast of the second trumpet back in chapter 8, we were told there that a third of the sea became like blood and that a third of the living creatures that were in the sea died. Now here with the second bowl, 
all of the sea becomes like blood, and every living creature that is in the sea dies. No more fractions. No more partial judgment. The escalation of devastation is clear. The, the, the growing uh, violence and destruction is occurring as we go from one to the next. And it's now universal in scope. The sea turning to blood here would have uh, reminded uh, those who were following the beast, would have reminded them of the blood of the martyrs who had been killed, whom they had killed. It would have reminded them, that, them of that and, and been kind of a kick in the pants to get things right with God and bring them to repentance. It's also a foreshadowing of the final judgment to come of those who ultimately and finally fail to repent and trust in Christ. The third bowl in, the, in verse 4 says, The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. So both the second bowl and now this third bowl, both should recall to our mind the first plague of Egypt, where the Nile River itself was turned to blood. Again, reminding us that just as the plagues of Egypt foreshadowed the deliverance of God's people from Pharaoh, so these bowl plagues are foreshadowing the deliverance of God's people from the beast. But as this third bowl is being poured out, John hears another voice in heaven crying out. Look at verse 5. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. And so the angel reminds us that even though God is bringing these severe judgments on mankind in these bowls, he is just in doing so. This is probably one of the most difficult realities to come to grips with in the book of Revelation. The fact that God will judge sin and rebellion with a just application of his wrath and it will not be pretty for those on whom it falls some see this and think god to be unjust or unfair that these judgments of his are too harsh and too strict but that's only because we fail to have a full and complete appreciation for two very critical realities. First, the holiness of God, and secondly, the unholiness and the depravity of man. Remember what the redeemed sang in the song of Moses, the song of the Lamb in the previous chapter. For you alone are holy. Remember what the seraphim sang in Isaiah's throne room vision in Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. To say that God is holy is supremely more than saying that he is good or that he is pure. It means that he is perfect. It means that he is without any mixture of anything other 
than that which is good and perfect. It means that he's set apart. It means that he is different from everyone and everything. He's different from us because we are unholy. Mankind is categorically sinful and unholy. As the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3 considers the unholiness of man, the, the condition of man, listen to what he writes. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. He's speaking about us. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is in their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is a picture of mankind. This is us. God is holy and we are not. So if ever we begin to think that God is unjust or unfair or that his judgments are too harsh against sin, whether we're reading about judgment in the Old Testament or whether we're reading about it here in the book of Revelation, if we think it to be too harsh, it's because we have either lost sight of the holiness of God or we've begun to go soft on the utter vileness of man's sin, but probably both. Because we cannot grow, go soft on the vileness of man's sin without also going soft on the holiness of God. And if we go soft on the holiness of God, then we will consequently go soft on the vileness of man's sin. And so in case John or any of his readers were to fall into that trap, the angel here reminds us that God is just in his judgments and that those who are the recipients of his wrath deserve it. Look at verse 6. For they, they being those who are the targets of these bowls of wrath, they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. And you, most holy God, you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve, he says. The judgments are just because God is holy and it is what they deserve because of their sin. And then the altar sings in agreement in verse 7. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And so the altar itself is speaking here. And as the altar speaks, I can't help but think of the, the souls of the martyrs who are under the altar that we learned of in chapter 6, who were crying out to God. How long, O Lord, before you judge and avenge those who had killed us? How long before you avenge our blood? And they were told in that setting to rest a little bit longer until the full number of their fellow martyrs were added to their number. And now with the bold judgments being poured out on the earth dwellers, the altar itself adds to the song of this angel and tells us definitively that God's judgments are tr true and just. The blood of the martyrs is beginning to be avenged. 
fourth angel with the fourth bowl is seen in verses 8 and 9. Look there at those verses. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people. There's that divine passive again. We've seen it many times. It was allowed to scorch people with fire. Verse 9, they were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. So now we begin to see the unwillingness of the earth dwellers to repent, even in the face of this severe judgment. They've already got the painful sores from the first bowl. The sea and all the rivers have turned to blood. All of the creatures in the sea have died. And now in this fourth bowl that's poured out on the sun, the earth dwellers are consequently scorched with fire and with fierce heat. Whether this is a literal form of radiation or the world's worst sunburn or Whether, as I think, it simply refers figuratively to severe suffering as a result of God's judgment. The point is, it's awful, it's painful. But what we should note here is that the people know that this comes from God. We know it comes from God because of the divine divine passive here. The sun was allowed to scorch them with fire. Who allows it? We know that to be God. We've seen the divine passive many times in Revelation. But the people here also somehow know that this doesn't happen by coincidence. That God is the one who is doing this. And as a result, they curse him for it. They curse the name of God who had power over these plagues. And then we're told at the end of verse 9, they did not repent and give him glory. Instead of these plagues causing them to recognize their own sinfulness and recognize their, their own rebellion against God, instead of it leading them to humility and awareness of their own spiritual poverty and abject unholiness before a supreme and holy God, instead they doubled down on their sin and rebellion. They cursed God. And they refuse to repent. And at the mention of those actions of these people, we should be returned to that line in the angel's song in verse 6. It is what they deserve. They curse God and refuse to repent. And they get what they deserve. Next, the fifth angel is in verses 10 and 11. And with this fifth angel and the pouring out of the fifth bowl, the intended target of the bowl changes. Instead of it being poured out on those who follow and worship the beast, this bowl is poured out on the domain of the beast itself. Look at verses 10 and 11. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. So this fifth bowl is similar to the fifth trumpet, where the sun and the sky turn to darkness. 
also reminds us of the ninth plague of Egypt, where Egypt itself was plunged into darkness. But this darkness is on the beast's kingdom, we're told. And as a result of the darkness on the beast's kingdom, the people gnawed their tongues in anguish. The word that is translated anguish in verse 10 is the very same word that is translated pains in verse 11. And so it's either that they gnawed or chewed their tongues in physical pain or in mental anguish. Either way, somehow the darkness causes them severe torment. And yet again, it doesn't bring them to repentance. They curse God and do not repent. The sixth bowl is a bit different. Look at verse 12. The sixth angel pours out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. If you remember, the Euphrates River was also featured prominently in the sixth trumpet judgment when the four angels who were bound at the river Euphrates were released, and along with them, 200 million mounted troops who killed a third of humanity. Now something somewhat similar happens here in the sixth bowl. As this bowl is poured out on the Euphrates River itself, the river dries up, and we're told that that prepares the way for the kings of the east to now attack and advance. So the Euphrates here in this Uh, with this bowl is seen as a kind of boundary and it was in ancient Israel in the Old Testament the Euphrates was a physical boundary that kept out the invading hordes of pagans from invading the promised land and now here in John's vision the Euphrates is a, a kind of spiritual boundary holding back the kings of the earth from waging all-out war on God and his people. But now we're told that with the pouring out of this bowl, the boundary is now removed, and the way is cleared for the kings of the east to attack. That phrase, the kings of the east, is not meant to be a, a geography puzzle. It is simply referring to them as the kings and nations of the earth who oppose God and his people. And so we see this battle that's beginning to brew. And the battle lines are being drawn up for this battle. But just as these kings of the east are mentioned, the vision shifts now back to that unholy trinity that we've seen before. Verse 13. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. So what does John see? He sees the dragon, Satan. He sees the Antichrist, the first, pro, the, the first beast. And he sees the second beast, who for the first time here is called the false prophet. All three together compromising what we've come to know as the unholy trinity. And from each of their mouths, John sees coming forth these unclean spirits that he says are like frogs and apparently all of this happens as a result of the sixth bowl being poured out this should remind us of the second plague of egypt 
where Egypt itself was invaded by frogs. It was a plague of frogs on the land. The difference is, in that plague, those were real frogs. Here we're told that these are like frogs. In reality, as we learn in the next verse, they are really demons. And so what is their purpose? Look at verse 14. What is the purpose of these demons? For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world, presumably including the kings of the east, to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And so these demons coming out from the dragon and the two beasts, they perform signs. They perform some kind of miracles. And the effects of their signs is to convince the kings of the world to assemble themselves for a battle against the Lord. Now, we don't know exactly what these demons did. But the effect of them had a very real impact and very real influence on the kings of the world and convinced them to do something that is absolutely insane and utterly foolish. And that is to gather together before God and fight Him. And that would be like me challenging LeBron James to a game of one-on-one. And it's an absolute joke of a contest. Imagine the level of demonic activity and influence that I would have to be exposed to me for me to think that I had a shot at beating LeBron James in a game of basketball. But that's what's going on here. In church, I'm concerned that perhaps sometimes we underplay the very real effect of demons from the pit of hell in our world today. Not that we're to look for demonic activity around every corner, but neither are we to ignore its very real existence. G.K. Beale writes, Our rationalistic age makes it difficult for us to see with the same eyes as the biblical writers, yet these same age-old forces are still very much at work. He continues, Our battle is not only against the world's influence and the influence of our own indwelling sin and the detrimental influence of our old nature in us, but, as Ephesians 6.12 reminds us, our struggle is against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so as Paul exhorts us in Ephesians 6, we should stand firm, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might, and put on the full armor of God so that we might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So these demons come out of the mouths of the unholy trinity, and they convince the kings of the earth, including the proverbial kings from the east, to go to battle against God and against God's people. The battle that is being prepared for here is that infamous battle of Armageddon. Uh, Jump forward to verse 16. We're told that explicitly. They assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The word Armageddon comes from two Hebrew words. Har, which means hill or mount, and Megiddo, which is an actual city in ancient Israel, northwest Palestine. So literally, 
Armageddon means the hill of Megiddo or the mount of Megiddo. The only problem is the ancient city of Megiddo is not on a hill. It's not on a mountain. In fact, it's on a very flat plain. And so it's not talking here about a, a battle that will take place in the historical city of Megiddo. But, but Megiddo was the location of many critical battles that are described in the Old Testament. And so it became, for the Israelites, symbolic for the great final battle. The battle is called Armageddon. The fact that it's called Armageddon, the hill of Megiddo, the mount of Megiddo, simply speaks to its importance in the eschaton. This is the last great battle. The battle itself will be described and waged in chapter 19, but here we just see the assembling of the front lines for this battle, and it's brought about by the pouring out of the sixth bowl. But let's go back to verse 15, because in verse 15, Jesus seems to interrupt John's vision. Verse 15 says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. If your, your, if your translation of the Bible is one of those red letter editions that includes the, letter, the words of Jesus in red font, this will be in red. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Some English translations will include a parenthesis around this. Other English translations will indent this, set it apart somehow. And that's because the translators recognized that this was a kind of parenthetical thought, as if Jesus was interrupting John's vision. But what seems in context to be out of place, commentator Scott Duvall calls the very central message of this chapter. So John sees a time when the earth and those who dwell on the earth will experience suffering and tribulation such as the world has never known. The church at this point is being heavily persecuted. Those who are following the beast are being exposed now to the wrath of God. As a result, they're suffering greatly. And now the kings and nations of the earth under the influence of demonic spirits, have assembled themselves to wage all-out war on God and His church. And Jesus interrupts to say, I'm coming back. I'm returning. But the way that He describes His return is interesting. He says, I'm coming like a thief. This is a theme that's consistent throughout the New Testament when the scriptures speak of the return of Christ being like a thief who comes in the night. Jesus himself says as much in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew 25, Mark 13, Luke 12. Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 2 says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Apostle Peter says the exact same thing in 2 Peter 3 verse 10. But what does it mean that the day of the Lord, referring to the second coming of Christ, his return, what does it mean that it will be like a thief in the night? 
Some suggest that this is a reference to the imminent return of Christ, meaning that his return could be at any moment. That's what the word imminent means, at any moment. That argument says that if a thief is coming, we must be watchful because the thief could come at any moment. But the analogy of the thief coming in the middle of the night, as described in Scripture, in my view, simply means that we don't know when he's coming, and that it is unexpected when he comes. To say that it's imminent means that nothing else needs to happen before that happens, that the thief could come at any moment. But I would suggest that this is not what Jesus is saying in the Olivet Discourse, nor is it what Peter and Paul are saying when they speak about Jesus coming like a thief in the night. They're simply saying that the, the, the timing of his return is unknowable. It's unexpected, in my humble opinion. And again, the caveat is, I could be wrong, and those of you who might disagree might be right. But in my opinion, there are things that must happen before the return of Christ. I'll give you two very brief examples. Number one, the Great Commission must be fulfilled. Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The words of Jesus. And so as long as there are people groups who have never heard the gospel, I would suggest to you that Jesus will not return until that takes place because of what he himself said. The second thing that must occur, I believe, is, because, is that the tribulation itself must occur. If what is described as the tribulation in the book of Revelation is future, and I believe, as we've said before, that for the most part it is, then it must occur before Jesus returns. Jesus doesn't return until chapter 19, after the tribulation. Now, we can have a really interesting conversation offline about the unexpectedness of Jesus' return versus the eminence of Jesus' return. And if you're into that sort of discussion, then I would be happy to oblige you uh, with that. But that does get, a, get us a bit off target from the text this morning. What we need to see here is that there, there's an implied exhortation in Jesus' announcement that he's coming like a thief in the night. He says, second half of verse 15, Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. The implied exhortation here is, stay spiritually awake. Be spiritually awake. He's not talking here about literal sleep, and so he's not talking about literally staying awake, but figuratively he is referring to spiritual wakefulness, that we are dialed in to the reality that he is present and that there is a spiritual world that is at play around us and that we're actively engaged in kingdom work with him. As Jesus gives this exhortation, he gives it as both a warning and a beatitude, a blessing. It's a warning against spiritual slumber and spiritual laziness. How many of you have ever used a snooze button in the morning? Oh, some of y'all need to deal with the Lord because you know that you have. 
Come on, snooze buttons are glorious. You wake up in the morning, your alarm clock wakes you up, and you haven't gotten enough to sleep, and so all you got to do is hit that snooze button, and you get a few more minutes of sleep. I mean, it's glorious, right? But I would suggest that probably all of you who raised your hand have also experienced the horror of waking up in a sweat, realizing that you've hit that button one too many times. And I can tell you about a time that I did this at Georgia Tech, and I nearly missed my physics exam my sophomore year, and it was horrible. And I was in a sweat, and it was terrible. Perhaps the snooze button is not the blessed gift that we sometimes think it is. But Jesus here is warning John and John's readers, and by way of extension, he's warning us today against living in that hit the snooze button one more time kind of existence when it comes to our alertness to what God is doing in our world and our readiness to engage in kingdom work with him. It's a warning to us. But it's also a beatitude. Bible scholars tell, tell us that there are seven beatitudes in the book of Revelation. We've seen two of them so far in our study. The first came in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. The second beatitude in the book of Revelation came from chapter 14, verse 13, when John heard a voice from heaven saying, Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. And the third beatitude in Revelation is found here in the 15th verse of chapter 16, where Jesus says, Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Wokeness is a word that is thrown around in our culture today, referring to how awake one might be to the racial and social injustices in the world. Well, here Jesus is talking about spiritual wokeness. That we are not so caught up in either the sufferings of the world or, on the other hand, the delights and the pleasures of the world. That we are lulled into thinking that this world is all that in a bag of chips. That this world is all there is. Jesus wants us to be reminded that he's coming and that this world is passing away and that there is perhaps an even more real spiritual world that is at play that we would be very well served to recall to mind. And so Jesus wants us to stay awake spiritually be aware of what's happening in that spiritual reality and to be engaged in our own spiritual fitness and to be engaged in the spiritual fitness of our brothers and sisters in Christ and that we are engaged in bringing the gospel to those who are not only spiritually asleep but are spiritually dead. That's what's meant by spiritual wokeness. And so Jesus warns us here against spiritual lethargy and spiritual slumber. And he says, blessed, literally happy are those who stay awake. Keeping his garments on 
In other words, continuing to pursue holiness and a practical righteousness in their life, following the commands of Jesus, not the influence of the beast and the enemy. That he may not go about naked and be seen exposed because he was spiritually asleep. So the exhortation for us is to stay awake, to not hit the spiritual snooze button, to engage in our own spiritual walk with Jesus, to engage in the spiritual disciplines, to eliminate the things in our life that get in the way of our walk with Jesus, to to engage with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to help them grow in their walk with Jesus, and to go with the gospel so that others might walk with Jesus as well. May we said to be a people who are spiritually woke. And then the seventh and final bold judgment is found in verses 17 through 21. And and with this final bold judgment, as with the sixth seal and the seventh trumpet that came before, we are ushered to the very end of redemptive history where God pulls a drawstring on the timeline of eternity. Look at verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying it is done and yes we should recall here the words of Jesus as he hung on the cross and breathed his last and said it is finished now the father God himself from the throne says it is done For certainly when Jesus died on the cross and he paid the price for the sins of all those who would come to faith in him, he set into motion all of redemptive history that now comes to this point with the seventh bowl. For with this bowl being poured out, God's plan of redemption of sinners has been fully executed. There is no more opportunity for repentance. All of the elect are in his kingdom at this point, and now it's time for the end. And just as we saw storm theophanies at other points previously in the book of Revelation, when we were ushered to the very end, here we see another storm theophany in verses 18 and 19. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been Since man was on the earth, so great was that earthquake. And the great city, referring not to Jerusalem, but to Babylon, symbolic of all of the world's empires of that day, the great city was split into three parts, meaning it was utterly demolished. And the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. This is God's judgment on Babylon, which is symbolic of the fall of the empires of man on the world, as God and his wrath is poured out on them in the end. And the next couple of chapters that we'll get to in January, chapter 17 and 18, will give greater detail about how that fall 
occurs. But that brings us now to the end of these judgments. We had the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and now these seven bowl judgments. All three describing suffering and tribulation on the earth. The first two also describing the persecution and suffering of God's people, the church. And this final one, these bowls, describing exclusively God's wrath being poured out on those who follow the beast and the image of the beast rather than following Jesus. And all three of these sets of seven judgments lead us to the very precipice of eternity and the final judgment where we will pick up that story beginning in January. For now, let us be reminded that this world is not all there is. Sin and rebellion and injustice seem to go unchecked and in many cases unpunished in this world. There seems to be no justice. But God's wrath is simply being stored up. And it is being held at bay by His divine mercy and grace. He's holding it back in the sanctuary in heaven, these bowls filled with the wrath of God by his divine patience. But there is coming a day when the wrath of God will be poured out full strength on man, and it will mark the very end. And friend, if you know Jesus Christ as Lord, that is a day that you long for, that is a day that you pray for. For after that, we will experience the resurrection ourselves. And we will be reunited body and soul with the Lord to reign and rule with Him for all eternity. And so let us thank Him for that merciful and gracious salvation. And let us remain spiritually awake, alert and engaged in His kingdom work, both in us and others around us for his glory. But if you do not know Christ as Lord, then honestly, this is a day that you hope will never come. For after this, you will come before the throne of God and will have to give an answer for your rebellion against God. And God will find you guilty of your sin and rebellion. And he will sentence you to an eternity of punishment that is so horrible that the scriptures describe as burning for all eternity in a lake of fire. If you've never come to faith in Jesus, repented of your sins, and trusted in Christ alone as your only hope to be forgiven to be rescued from this, then this is what awaits you in the judgment. But the good news is that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, to put on flesh as we'll celebrate in Advent, to live a perfect life that we never could, fully obey the law, fully achieve the righteousness that is impossible for us to achieve and then sent him to a cross to die in the place of sinners 
so that we might be rescued from what we deserve. Friend, if that describes you, then your only hope to escape that just and yet horrifying judgment is to throw yourself at the mercy of God and trust in Christ alone for rescue. And I beg of you to do so. Let's pray. God, it's so easy for us to be lulled to sleep spiritually, be caught up in the things of the world, either in happiness because we are just taken by the delights and pleasures that this world has to offer, things are going well, or because we are overcome by trials and suffering in this world, and we think that they will never end. God, thanks for putting this book on the end of your book to remind us that this world is not all there is. To remind us that you will finally and completely bring an end to all rebellion and injustice. And you will finally and completely welcome home those who have come to faith in your son Jesus. Thank you for that reminder. Help us to live today in light of that already determined future. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be spiritually awake and alert, engaged in your work until you bring us home or return. And Father, may you make the hope of the gospel so unavoidably real to those who are far from you in this room that they cannot help but surrender to Christ and trust in Jesus and his finished work on the cross as their only and sufficient hope for rescue. May they long to be reconciled to you through Christ and may they trust in Christ to be so reconciled. Thank you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.